You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here. By the way, this band, how good, right? Man, that was so powerful. I, I don't know if we should just close in prayer and just like head on out. That was amazing. Oh, wow, that was so powerful. So, but I did, I prepared something, so I may as well, right? So um, when my wife, I have three kids, for those of you that maybe aren't aware. Uh, my daughter Mia is 16. My son Xander is 13. My daughter Olivia is 11. When my wife was pregnant with my daughter Olivia, um, she was at the baby shower, and while she was gone, I bought her uh, a minivan to fit all of us, and it was waiting uh, when she got home. It was like, she was so excited. It was a great moment. Well, about two weeks after we got it, Carrie goes to Publix uh, with Mia, age five at the time, and Xander, age two. And she comes out, and she sees the minivan. It has a giant smash on the side. I mean, like this, it was all this white paint was on it. Uh, it was a gray minivan, all this white paint, this huge smash on the side. And um, she sees it. I mean, she starts crying and, uh, I mean, uncontrollably crying. She can't believe it. Then, you know what happens when mom starts crying? Um, the kids start crying. So now in the middle of the public's parking lot, Carrie is crying. Mia is crying. Xander is crying. And, uh, and she's, like, she's like, oh, your dad is going to kill me. And, um, and, and the kids get very concerned. They're like, mommy, is dad going to kill you? And uh, I was like, are we going to be on Dateline? Um, and... Uh, and she, <laughs> and she says, no, no, but he's, he's going to be upset. He worked so hard to get us his fan, and now it's smashed, and she's talking about it. Now she's hysterical. It was so bad. I don't know how hard you have to cry for the public's workers to come out and see how, but that's how hard she was crying. And then, uh, you know, a woman who's like nine months pregnant crying in the parking lot. The people come out to see if she's okay. Then all of a sudden, this woman comes over to calm my wife down. She's like, sweetie, calm down, calm down. She's like, look. And, but she's like, look, and, and she says to my wife, sweetie, calm down. That's my car. <laughs> and um, my wife kept pushing the button for the, 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 the back to go up and it wouldn't go up. She didn't realize the minivan right next to it, the, it was the, the, the back was just going up and down this whole time. And so she finally has this moment where she's kind of seeing the whole picture for what it is. And she just says to the woman, she's like, hey, would it be okay if I hugged you? And uh, she hugged her and she said to her, she's like, I'm so sorry, this is your car, but I'm so happy it's not mine. And so, <laughs> now, Listen, it really is amazing. It's amazing how people can see the same event, but see it differently. See it from a little bit of a different perspective. And when you can see things from a different perspective, it can totally transform what it is that you're seeing. At the cross, when Jesus was crucified, there was all types of people looking at the same event, but looking at it through a different lens. There were the religious leaders who were walking by, slowing, slowing down enough to scoff and mock at Jesus. There were those who were indifferent as they walked by, of course, just kind of going about their business. There were family members there weeping. There was one disciple of Jesus who was sad and confused. And there were Roman soldiers that were just doing their job. You see, the cross meant something different 
to all of them in that day. And truth be told, it means something different to a lot of people today. But after Jesus died, the cross took on new meaning. And it made everyone decide. It made everyone around the cross take inventory of their own lives and decide what it is that they believed about who Jesus is. And so we are in, if you can believe it, message number 46 in a series through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've been with us, if you haven't, we'll get you up to speed. But if you have, then Jesus has just died. On Sunday, we finished in uh, verse 50 of Matthew chapter 27, where it says that Jesus breathed his last. He's just died. It's 3 p.m. on the day of the Passover. But the weirdest thing has happened. The weirdest thing that's happened is, and we read it on Sunday, is that from noon until 3 p.m., there was darkness all over the land of Israel for a period that lasted a little over three hours. Now, we don't know how it happened. It's Passover, which starts with a full moon, so an eclipse wouldn't have been possible. So this has to be a supernatural darkness, which kind of makes sense because when Jesus was born, the angels showed up at night and lit up the sky saying that the Savior had been born, and now the one who said that he was the light of the world has died, and now there is darkness in the middle of the day. But as the darkness begins to lift, there's a spiritual blindness that begins to lift as well. And what I want to do in our time together is I just want us to see three reactions of three different people around the cross that are so powerful, because here's what happens. The cross makes us choose. And here's how the Apostle Paul, a convert to Christianity later, would say this in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says this in chapter 1, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Have you noticed there's really only two places that you can stand? You can either stand in the place where the cross is foolishness or a stumbling block, or the cross is saving you because it's the power of God, and that's the way it always works. The cross always makes us choose, and we see that here. So we're going to begin. If you have your Bible, uh, we'd love for you to turn to Matthew 27. If not, look at the notes, look at the screen, look at the app. As long as you don't have your eyes closed, you can probably see the text somewhere. Um, we're going to start in verse, in verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then in verse 51, Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things that I want to show you as we uh, make our way through this. But the first thing I want to tell you is this, is number one, God is making a statement. Now, there's several things that we just read in these few verses that are happening all at once. The first thing that we read that Matthew tells us, the most significant thing, is that the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Now, before I tell you what that means, I want to explain what the veil is, what it does, and how big it was. According to a Roman historian whose name was Josephus, uh, the veil of the temple was 60 feet high and 30 feet wide, and it was four to five inches thick. It was about as thick as from the palm of your hand to the edge of your finger. This was a thick veil. It wasn't something that you could just rip. It wasn't something that you could just casually cut with a knife. 
The other thing is that it was ripped from top to bottom, which is kind of an odd detail. So what, what, let's explain what that is. So let's um, first, let me, let's talk about the temple. Now, this is a model uh, that was rebuilt of, of the temple. And we'll actually, if you come with us to Israel in November, we'll actually see this model and do some teaching here. But this is the whole, uh, when they talk about the temple, sometimes they're talking about the entire temple complex, which is about 40 acres. Um, or they can talk just about this walled area, uh, which has different courts. But the main temple, the temp, what we would call the temple proper, is this building right here. Now, this building was not very big uh, at, at all. The building was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, about 60 feet high. And I think we have a picture of the inside. This is kind of what it would have looked like. This is the veil. This is uh, the menorah, which if you, Hanukkah, you kind of know that story. Uh, this is the altar of incense. This is the, all, the table of showbread. So these all have significance. And so this, is set, this would separate. Now, only the priests could go into this area that's called the holy place. And this separated this other room behind the veil that was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a 15 by 15 square. Originally, it contained the Ark of the Covenant, which looks something like this. And those of you that have seen Indiana Jones uh, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they've kind of given us an understanding of what this uh, looks like. And, but the thing that's important to know is that this was not in Herod's temple. This was in the original temple. The temple was destroyed. And then there's all kinds of theories as to what happened to the ark that we won't talk about because uh, then we start getting into like conspiracy theories and did we land on the moon and, you know, things like that and all that, which is very interesting to talk about, but not for our purposes tonight. But essentially, uh, in the second temple in which Jesus frequented when he was uh, in his earthly ministry, the Holy of Holies did not have this piece of furniture, which means it was totally empty. The Day of Atonement, it was one day a year that a priest could go in, and uh, the high priest, and he would go in to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, when the temple was there, he would take, um, they would make an offering, and then he would take a piece of uh, hyssop, which is like a branch, and then he would sprinkle on this area uh, the cover, which is called the mercy seat. He would sprinkle seven times on, on there. Now, now People wonder, why is that seven times? We're not really sure. By the way, it is very interesting when you think about how many places Jesus bled from when he died. He bled from seven places, if you're not aware. His, both of his feet, both of his hands, his side, his back, his head. Seven places. Now, but more on that some other time. But the veil is what separated God's presence from everybody else. So why is the veil torn? When Jesus dies, the veil is torn from top to bottom because God is saying the separation is over. When Jesus died, the access to God was available now to everyone and anyone at any time. And this veil was a constant, when it was up, it was a constant reminder of man's sinfulness, a constant reminder of the separation that sin brings between God and humanity. But now we can come to God freely. The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says it this way, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That means that you and I can come to God, seek wisdom, help, grace, favor, not because we're awesome, but because of Jesus. The veil is torn and we have access to God. Listen, sometimes we're praying for God to open a door and uh, sometimes, you know what happens? When you're praying and you're praying something that is God's will and you're like, man, I don't know how this is gonna happen. God has this way 
of tearing a veil and giving you access that you didn't think was possible. You see, have you ever thought about that, that maybe God is calling you to trust him, to create a way? That there's no, you know, there was no door to Jericho to get in. And so you know what happened? God just destroyed the wall and says, hey, look, now there's no need for a door. <laughs> there's, there's nothing stopping you now. Um, and so there was a veil that separated God's presence from the people. And so he tore it from top to bottom. You know what that means? Not from bottom to top. This wasn't man, uh, mankind trying to cut it. This was God from top to bottom saying, hey, you can freely come to me. Obeying God, obeying the will of God can create opportunities in your life and take us so much further than effort alone could ever do it. That doesn't mean we don't put forth effort. It means we, we pray, we exercise wisdom, and then we do what God's called us to do, and then we watch God multiply our effort in ways that we never thought possible. Now, some of you know this, that I used to run a college before I came and started Calvary uh, 22 years ago. And one of the things that I did while I was there, I spent almost five years running a college, and it was a great time. But one of the things that I did was get the college accredited so that uh, college, the, the tr credits could transfer, whatnot, um, students could transfer credits in and out. And so to get final approval for this, now this was a long process. To get final approval, I had to attend a meeting with their the, the accreditation board and state our case. I had to fly to Tampa uh, to attend this meeting. Now, I get there the morning of, there are 20 schools, 20 other schools on the list and I was number 19. So I was in for a long day. And what I saw over the course of almost seven hours was people going to this board and yelling and screaming. And then the board was screaming back. I listened to applicants yelling to make their cause. Every school that was there brought an entire teams of people, officials. Some schools even brought lawyers. I was 23 years old and by myself. And I was like, why did I not bring my posse with me? First of all, I need to get myself a posse and, uh, and then bring them with me. So I sat there and I'm thinking, I've got, and these people, I mean, they're, they're bringing out, I mean, they've got the, you know, those uh, uh, cardboard uh, boxes filled that, that have folders in them. They're just bringing box after box. I had my bag, I had this one folder. And I thought I was very well prepared. Little did I know. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, so I'm just, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh no, what have I done? I mean, they're going to eat me alive when, when I get up there. And so when it was my turn, um, and I just want you to understand, I mean, these are people that have been in education for a long time. I took over this school nine months ago. All right. And so and I've met with one of the guys on the board. That's the only guy I knew, which was, and he wasn't even there that day, which was really a bummer. And so, the, uh, so they, they get the application. There's a bunch of, you know, I hand out the packet or whatever. And the chairman of the board, who, by the way, was rough, and he was the one that was doing a lot of the screaming throughout the, the day. And he sees the, the school, and he says, Calvary Chapel, is this school associated with Chuck Smith out of California? And I was like, um, uh, yes, I, I think, would you like it to be? Uh, and, uh, and I said, yeah, yes, it is, sir. And, and he said, you know, I used to listen to Pastor Chuck um, on the radio years ago. That man's teaching blessed my life. I approve of this school. He stamped, and that was it. Yeah. And I appreciate that, but I'm not done with the story yet. And uh, so... But remember, people have been screaming all day long. 
And so the other guys on the board were like, hold on, we haven't discussed this and other board members haven't weighed in. And this guy, man, and he's a, he's a big guy with a big beard and he, he takes off his glasses, he goes, do any of you have a problem <laughs> with what I have just done? And, uh, and they were like, oh, no, no, sir, we're good. We're good. Man. You're, just, we're just, you're doing a great job. We just wanted to commend you on what you're, what you're, what you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's, and, he just, and he turns to me and goes, young man, do what God has called you to do. You're approved. And I ran out of there <laughs> faster than when they, they could change their minds. Now, and here's the thing. There is no way I could have orchestrated that situation. But here's the thing that I've learned. Listen, some days God shows up. Some days God shows off. And he just really does something amazing. But listen, I did my part, but God tore the veil and created a way for me. Listen, that's what happens there with this earthquake, graves being opened. And then they're like, people, saints of old, like people, what they're saying is there were people who had died that were like coming out of the graves and they were like walking around in Jerusalem like, are you my aunt? Yes, I am. You know, I'm just like, didn't we bury you like two years ago? Yes, you did. And I do, I have a message for you. And, uh, and, and there's no, now I'm telling you this, look, 2,000 years of church history and theologians are still kind of unsure. I have read, I mean, I must have read 50 different commentaries this week on this passage and most of them just skipped it. They were just like, yeah, they just like acknowledged it. Like, yeah, that happened. Moving on. And it's like, well, well, thanks for nothing. And I'm um, returning the book. And so, but here's the thing. Why is that? Here's what we can know of why God did this. Of this, we can be sure. There could be other implications, but of this, we can be sure. God the Father is highlighting resurrection to every person in Israel and getting them to talk about it. Now, here's the thing that's important for you to understand. Most Jews, not all, but most Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. That is, God, his whole plan is going to be completed, and then there'll be a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. No one knew when that would be, but it would be all godly people all at once. The idea of one person being resurrected, while a biblical idea uh, for sure, was not something that they could wrap their minds around. So all these saints of old coming up and saying, hey, what's up? You know, what's going on? And just freaking people out, I'm sure. I would freak me out. But it was testifying to the fact that God raises the dead and that God can raise them in whatever order or number he wishes. And all of this, was simply to testify that Jesus was going to be risen from the dead. So what happens next? One guy is watching all of this take place, and look what, look what takes place. In verse 54, it says, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquakes and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, that is James the Less, um, little James, and uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons. So if you pause there and uh, give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you about what happens after, after the crucifixion is that not just is God making a statement, but the second thing is, is that a soldier is coming to faith. Now, every time I read this passage, I'm, I'm always reminded of this movie that I absolutely love. It is my favorite Christian movie uh, ever, ever made. And um, it came out literally 70 years ago. Uh, it came out in 1953. It's a movie called The Robe. I don't know if you, anybody here has ever seen that movie. Um, if, if you have, you're not young. And, um, 
But um, I've seen it several times. I absolutely love it. It stars Richard Burton, who was a really big movie star at that time. And it follows the story of a Roman soldier whose name was Marcellus Gallio and um, a servant uh, by the name, uh, a runaway servant by the name of Demetrius. But Gallio is the, is the soldier that is commanded to crucify Jesus. And he is tormented by the fact that he crucified Jesus. And um, he seeks out Demetrius because Demetrius is the one who has the robe, uh, the purple robe that they, they put on Jesus. And uh, this guy eventually uh, learns who Jesus is, becomes a Christian. Anyway, I just spoiled it for you, but it's, it's awesome. It's a wonderful movie, but... What's so powerful about this statement is the proclamation that the centurion makes. Now, a centurion is a soldier that is in command uh, of 100 soldiers. So he has a detachment of 100 soldiers that are under his command. So he was, this guy was Roman, of course. And so the late Caesar Augustus, who was the Caesar at the time when Jesus was born, was considered a god. The current Caesar, the current emperor, whose name was Tiberius, he had coins minted that said, Tiberius, son of God. And this was the thing that they, that they said. They had, uh, there was all kinds of coins minted, thing, propaganda that was done, of, that he was the son of God, and they just revered Augustus so much. So this soldier has decided, when he says truly this was the son of God, he's making a decision that Tiberius Caesar is not the son of God. This man that was crucified was. Now, I want, I, I want to... Um, talk about this for a second because sometimes we can just kind of gloss over this and we're like, hey, let's get to the good stuff in chapter 28 and the resurrection. But I, I want to I slow this a little bit. I want you to understand something about a centurion. Death was a centurion's business. This guy had no doubt witnessed countless executions and countless crucifixions. And most of them begging for their lives and declaring their innocence, not Jesus, he made seven statements from the cross, and none of them were about him. But there's something important and something maybe we should be asking, and that is, um, why is this seemingly random comment in the Bible? Like, who cares what a centurion thinks? Now, it makes sense in the Gospel of Mark, because the Gospel of Mark records it, um, to mention this moment, because the Gospel of Mark was written to a Gentile audience. So for a Gentile audience to hear what a Roman soldier has to say, okay, maybe that stands out. But why would Matthew include it? Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Because I believe that there's something profound here. That Jesus suffered well. And it impacted this centurion enough to re recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said it this way. He said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Here's what... Peter is telling us, if you are a Christian and you're suffering as a Christian and you suffer well, you're going to bring glory to God. People are watching how you handle the difficulties that come into your life. And I'm telling you, I have watched um, people 
do this in, in my life over and over. And my wife and I were just talking about this today. A couple of years ago, I got my wife and I uh, tickets to go to this comedy show. And it was up at the BB&T Center. I know it's called something else now, but it's the BB&T Center for me. And uh, so, but we said, hey, let's go to dinner first. So I go online and I make reservations for us to go to P.F. Chang's, which is right across the street. So I go there, I make the reservation, and then we get there. Uh, our reservation is at six. We get there and it is so packed, you can't even move. And uh, I finally make it to the hostess station and I tell them, hey, we have a reservation for 6 p.m. But there's about another hundred people that have reservations at the same time. And um, so Carrie and I, and, and, and we're trying to figure out what's going on. So we kind of stand behind the hostess station. That was the only place we could stand or find a place. And, and, they, and the, we hear the hostess explaining what happened. So apparently um, there is another, there's an app that you can use to book reservations. And there was the, uh, the, the P.F. Chang's website. And so it was total. it didn't, it, it didn't stop. So if, However many people wanted a 6, 6 p.m. So anyway, it usually it's like, hey, we have 10 available or whatever. Well, it let m almost 100 people make reservations, and all of us showed up at the same time uh, looking to eat. So while we're standing there, we are like, wow, this is a situation. And, uh, but my wife and I are just talking, and while we're standing there, my wife just starts um, grabbing the menus and starts cleaning them, and, um, and, and we're, just, we're just talking, so, and the hostess... Uh, she turns and she's like, hey, please, you don't, you don't have to do that. And we're like, listen, we're, we're just standing here. At least we can be helpful. And um, a minute later, because the, 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 I mean, it's chaos. And uh, a, a couple minutes later, um, the girl says, you two follow me. And um, she sits us down at this table. And, uh, and she's like, thank you so much for being patient. Thank you so much uh, for being helpful. And, uh, and I'm like, hey, no problem. For a free dessert, we'll bust a few tables too. <laughs> and, um, and so... Now, that Sunday, that Sunday, I tell that story uh, to the church. So this is about four years ago. And that's, I think, the last time I told that story. And um, after the service, and it gets a big laugh and, um, you know, makes the point. And then uh, after the service, a guy walks up to me and he says, hey, uh, I wanted to introduce myself. And I'm like, oh, hey, it's great to meet you. He says, hey, I just want you to know I'm the manager of P.F. Chang's. And, um, and I'm like, oh, wow. And, uh, and, I'm, and then I have this moment. They're like, did I say anything that I should be embarrassed about? And uh, because I, I do that, and I think I told you guys that story of when I, I really talked some trash about Subway. Um, and then at the end of the service, the, I got introduced to the vice president of Subway. And uh, this is, yeah, this is, this is, I guess we're never gonna see each other again. And that was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so anyway, um, but what's funny is, is that, and he's been coming to church now for the last four years. Uh, he's a great guy. And, uh, but what's funny is he goes, I'm, Hey, I'm so sorry that happened, but I just want to say thank you for being so kind to my staff when everybody else was screaming about what their, what was rightfully theirs. And you guys were just trying to help out. And, um, and listen, the reality is, is that trials and challenges and difficulty are just part of the Christian life. It is. And, and listen, and here's why, because that's where faith gets formed and it's where people are watching. You know, people aren't really that interested in how you handle blessing. Like nobody's like, I wonder how he'd handle a million bucks. Probably pretty well, you know, and uh, because everybody feels 
like they can handle, you know, if we, well, I have joy and I'm happily married and, um, you know, love my kids and, and, you know, things are good. Everybody's thinking we could probably handle that well too. But people want to know how it is that you and I can handle adversity because that, I believe, many times is what will tip the scales for people to know that your faith is real. Listen, this Roman soldier believed and he had never heard a sermon. He had never seen a miracle. He had never even spoken to Jesus. But after how he saw Jesus suffer, he believed. And I am, my friends, listen, I am convinced that there are people in your life and in mine who will believe if we handle adversity well. What happens next? Okay, verse 57. Now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a, linen, a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And then Pilate said to him, you have a guard, go your way, make it as sure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing, we're going to begin to make our initial descent. And that is, if the first thing is that God is making a statement, and the second thing that we see is that a soldier is coming to faith, the third thing I want you to see is that a disciple is standing up. Now, Jesus dies at 3 p.m., um, according to the Gospels. So this conversation happens with Joseph of Arimathea and Pilate, it happens between 3 and 5 p.m. Um, before and the d dusk would bring in uh, the Sabbath. Remember, this is all happening on Friday, which is Passover, and then Saturday is going to be the Sabbath. Now, um, if you remember, according to Jewish tradition, days are counted from sunset uh, to sunset. And so, now... For Pilate to give the body to Joseph of Arimathea, and I want to talk about Joseph for a second, but before I do it, I want to give you a little bit of background. For Pilate to give the body to Joseph of Arimathea was a departure from Roman customs involving crucifixion. So what typically happened to bodies after crucifixion? Well, one of two things happened. It all ended in the same place, but there were, there were two things that uh, Romans would do. The first, the first thing Romans would do when they wanted to be kind of extra nefarious is that they would leave their crucifixion victims on the cross for days to the point where the bodies would begin to decay or be eaten uh, by birds or wildlife. And then when the bodies were finally removed, they were thrown into a garbage heap outside of town of Jerusalem that is called Gehenna. Now, uh, the way that garbage was handled back then is that they would just 
have a place and, and everything would be incinerated. And so there was this constant fire that would never go out, which is where the new garbage was always being added. Now, Gehenna is a word that's used a good bit in the New Testament, and it's almost always translated as hell in the New Testament because Jesus uses that garbage dump as a metaphor, as an illustration for what an eternity separated from God looks like. Now, the other way that Romans dealt with crucifixion victims is that they immediately took them down from the cross and then threw them straight into Gehenna. So kind of the same thing, but um, just, you know, one was a bit delayed. But I want to show you something that happens. Uh, the Gospel of Mark tells us this. You'll see it in your notes. It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Pilate wants to make sure that Jesus has died. Now, once again, and we talked about this a couple of Sundays ago, the scourging was so severe that Jesus could barely walk as he made, himself, uh, made his way to the cross. He needed someone, Simon of Cyrene, to help him carry the crossbar uh, all the way up to Golgotha, the place of the skull. So Jesus, after six hours, uh, dies, and the centurion gives confirmation of this. So let's talk about who Joseph is, and then I want to wrap this up. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich, prominent member of a group that was called the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin were essentially the Supreme Court in Israel. They were, uh, it was a 71-member court with the high priest presiding. But even though he was a member of this court, uh, he was a disciple of Jesus, but in secret. But seeing how Jesus died, it caused him to come out of the shadows. In fact, uh, the Gospel of John tells us this way. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And if you remember, um, if, if you're familiar with this passage in John chapter 3, there was a man who was the teacher of Israel named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus explaining uh, how, do you, how do you do the things that you do? And Jesus says, um, unless you're born again, that is born of the Spirit, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. But seeing what Jesus had done caused these two secret disciples to stand up and step out of the shadows and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, here's the thing that we can be sure of. This request would cost something. It would probably cost him some of his prominence. It would cost him, surely, his seat on the Sanhedrin because these were, you got to understand, these are the most respected and influential people in all of Israel. But Joseph and Nicodemus put everything on the line in service to Jesus because it is the only response to someone who has just witnessed Jesus' death on their behalf. It's amazing to me just the level of detail that the Bible goes to. Joseph of Arimathea has just built a new tomb. Uh, for him, for his family, that's never been used. And yet this is exactly what the prophet Isaiah said, where it says this, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now this is such an important passage. It's a fulfillment of the many prophecies that are found in this chapter of Isaiah 52 and 53. But this section is also important to us. 
because the Jewish leaders wanted to make sure that the tomb was impenetrable just in case someone stole the body. So the Jewish leaders still leaning hard on Pilate to give them a detachment of troops to guard the tomb and place a Roman seal on it. And that's really important. I've underlined that in my Bible in verse 66, that they placed a Roman seal on it. Why is that important? This is very significant because even touching the stone, not even trying to move it, even touching the stone with the Roman, uh, with the Roman seal would put you under penalty of death just for touching it. Now, what I love about this is that Joseph steps out of the shadows and models for us what it looks like to follow Jesus even when it costs us something. There comes a moment in every disciple's life, every believer's life, when they have to stand up and they've got to decide, are we going to follow the crowd or are we, are we going to walk with God? And listen, I remember when it started for me. I remember when I first became a Christian and my family decided, and we never did anything, but my family decided all of a sudden that we were going to start having family get-togethers all on Sunday mornings. And uh, it was, no, you were going to do this. We're going to be all together. And I was, I can't go. And they're like, no, 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 this is your family. You got to go. And I'm, I'm 19 years old. I mean, I'm barely shaving. And, uh, and, 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 and I'm like, no, I can't go. And, and they're like, well, why? And they get started. I'm like, listen, I got to go to church. I just became a Christian, and I don't really know anything about being a Christian, except that Jesus died for me, and, I, and I, I need to learn God's word. And they're like, it's okay to miss church sometimes. I'm like, maybe for you, but not for me. I'm a mess. And so I need to, I need to, be, I need to be there. And they're like, well, then you don't love your family. And, uh, and I'm like, no, I do love my family, and I will love you at any time you like, just not before 1 p.m. on Sunday. And, um, and you know what happened? I was going to say, they changed the time. They just stopped the get-togethers altogether. They're like, yeah, we don't really like these people anyway. And, uh, but listen, it was, it was the beginning. It was the beginning of putting God first. I remember shortly after that, I was in a band, and some of you know that, but I was in a band, and we were on the verge of a record deal, and uh, we got invited to this music festival in Austin, Texas. It's called South by Southwest. Maybe you've, you, you've heard of it. This is a huge music festival. This is where bands go to get signed. And so... Um, I knew this was the moment that I had been waiting for since I was 13 was uh, to get a record deal. I had just become a Christian and um, our management company was, was uh, ready for it. Our management company only represented three bands. Uh, one was this country band called the Mavericks who are pretty big. Another band called Marilyn Manson, maybe you've heard of them, and, um, and my band. And I quit the band right before we went to Texas because I knew if I went to Texas to that uh, music showcase. I was going to meet all these people. We were going to sign a record deal. I was going to get caught up in that, and my young faith would not survive. So I walked away, and I decided that walking with Jesus was more important than anything else in my life. But listen to me. I was devastated. I mean, I second-guessed that decision. I cried. I thought I had thrown my whole future away. I thought, what am I going to do? Being a musician is the only thing I'm good at. Little did I know that I had gifts that were completely untapped and unrealized. Here's what Joseph learned, and this is the thing that I, I want you and I to learn, that every follower of Jesus has to learn at some point, that life is better when you do it God's way, that you might lose some things, yeah. That listen, you might lose some things, but what God wants to do in your life is so much greater than anything you could ask, think, or imagine. So listen, on Good Friday, we remember 
the sacrifice. We remember that Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples, that he celebrated this last meal that he had before he was betrayed and arrested and beaten and crucified. When we celebrate the Passover, it's one part, or communion, it's one part of the Passover meal that's celebrated with unleavened bread. That is bread that hasn't risen. And Exodus teaches us that the reason it hadn't risen is because people didn't, the, the people of Israel didn't have time for the bread to rise before they left Egypt. But the rabbis, upon reflection, the ancient rabbis taught something else. They taught that the reason the bread had to be unleavened is because it was a lesson in humility. Because we, by nature, we want to puff ourselves up and we want to make ourselves seem like we're more than we are, like we've got it under control and like we're self-sufficient. But here's what communion reminds us. It reminds us of who we really are. The unleavened bread that we hold in our hands reminds us that we are broken people who need a savior. We aren't all wise. We aren't all powerful. Instead, we only see a fraction of what's really going on. That's why trusting God is always the safest bet to make with your life. We are people who don't have it all together. And guess what? That's okay. God is still working on me. He's still working on you. He's still working in me. He's still working in you. And communion is our reminder that the work that he's begun, he's going to complete. So the ushers are going to come forward and they're going to hand out the communion elements. The band is going to begin to sing. And as they do, can I just encourage you in something? That maybe this is a moment that you have with God. That is it. Maybe this is a moment of worship and you're singing along. Maybe this is a moment where you're not singing anything. And you're just in a time of prayer and calling out to God and saying, God, I want it to be different this time. I want things to change. Maybe there's a, a, something you need to confess, then confess it. Maybe there's a promise you need to make, then make it. But whatever it is, let's let this be the moment where God moved in us. Maybe this is the moment where we decide that we're going to stand up and we're going to choose God over everything else in this world. So they're going to hand out the elements. Pastor George is going to lead us. Moments where I'm still in your presence. All the noise dies down Lord, speak to me now You have all my attention I will linger and listen I can't miss a thing Lord, I know my heart wants more of you My heart wants something new so high Surrender all Cause all I want Is to live within your love Be undone by who you are My desire is to know you deeper Lord, I will open up again Throw my fears into the wind Desperate for a touch Cause all I want Is to live within 
from the Lord that which I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's partake of the bread together in the same manner he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thanks doesn't seem to be the word that captures our gratitude, but Lord, maybe it's a start. God, you've done so much. You died for us. And so now, Lord, if you died for us, then we can commit to live for you. Because we know the story doesn't end here. It's grand and it's glorious. And it's the beginning of everything you want to do in our lives. So Lord, transform us, reshape us, remake us into the people that you want us to be prayed in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made, and we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you, and in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.